You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. Good morning and welcome to a very special live episode of All Things Video here at VidCon London. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Christian Bennett, Executive Editor of Video Journalism at The Guardian. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Hi, everyone. Yeah, nice to be here with all of you. And for those of you new to this experience, I'll give you some background. Uh, In my day job, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Paladin, which provides influencer marketing software to agencies and media companies worldwide. But I started this podcast four years ago as a passion project. I had found myself fortunate to get to talk to entrepreneurs and innovators in the digital media space all over the world, and you know, I wanted to share their stories with more people. And uh, as an Angelino, I found myself sitting in my car a lot of the time and uh, listening to a lot of other podcasts, and I figured, well, you know, how hard could it be? So I started sitting down with some uh, friends in the space and chatting a little bit more about their journey, and uh, that's how this project was born. So today we're going to dive into Christian's background and hear his perspective on the intersection of journalism and online video. Speaking of Christian, he studied radio and television at Bournemouth University and started his career as a video editor for RDF Television. Since then, he's spent nearly 12 years at The Guardian, one of the UK's oldest and most trusted publications, helping to shape their video strategy, which I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about today. Yeah. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning. Christian, what initially sparked your interest in media and journalism? So um, two things, really. One... um I'm almost 40, I'm 40 this year, so YouTube didn't exist when I was starting. The, the only way of actually, you know, there, there, was, there was no video on phones, like maybe your parents had a video camera, that was it, or your friend's parents did and you stole it off them, that sort of thing. Um, but what they did have in Sheffield, where I'm from, was a children's hospital radio and television, which basically, like, they just let you run riot making your own TV shows for a children's hospital that no one watched. So uh, me and my brother did that like every weekend from being about 12 onwards to being about 16. The other sort of sidebar to this is um, my mum hated us watching TV. And when the clocks went forward in spring, she locked up the TV because we should be out playing. Um, I work for The Guardian. My brother works for the BBC now. (laughs) I think that's some sort of response there as well. So, yeah, I'm not from a media family whatsoever, but I was always interested in trying to make stuff, something that seems like a really normal hobby for, like, tweens and teens now, but it was a bit weird sort of 20, 30 years ago. So it sounds like it had always just captured your fascination, but what ultimately led you to The Guardian? So, well, as I said, I went to uni at Bournemouth, which um, was... it was a television degree, and it was super practical. I, I think when I went there, they had about a 90% employment in the industry, which is really amazing. I kind of came out of there in 2003 when it was a real big digital TV boom. So there was just jobs left, right, and center in London. Um, and I you know, did what anyone does that doesn't have any family in London. You beg, steal, and borrow a sofa for a bit. You work day shifts. 
you get a kind of job that you don't think is bad, but probably is bad looking back at it. Um, I worked my first job over the summer while, while all my friends were having fun was working on a series, a daytime TV series called Moving Day, where basically on the hottest summer of the year while all my friends were out partying, I was like, I think three times a week you help someone move to house, which is just like, moving house is terrible, right? <laughs> Imagine doing it 20 times in the summer. And yeah, so, so that was my, f my first job with RDF, who at the time were... Uh, I think they're Zodiac Media now, um, or they might have been bought by someone else, but they, they were huge at the time. They had Stephen Lambert as their creative director, and they were just really coming into their own with reality television. So um, their formats were like faking it, wife swap, stuff like that, the sort of kind of swappy kind of things that were really popular, sort of dressed up as documentary, but not quite is a good way of explaining it. So yeah, I, I kind of just worked my way up there doing that, making TV, and then I think probably after about five years, these formats were starting to get a bit tired, and it didn't feel that good doing it, actually, to be honest. Like, it was generally a group of super educated, brilliant, amazing people finding people that were just the right level of vulnerable and making entertainment out of them, mm. um, which, like, you try and kid yourself, it's not that, but, you know it sort of end, ends up being that when you see it enough. So the way I always describe it is it was a sausage factory, but you got really good at making sausages there. I made a, a lot of TV programs. I really I was an editor there. I understood the grammar of editing. Um, and then an advert at The Guardian came up in the newspaper. Right, you all know newspapers still, right? They still exist somewhere. Some people buy them. Um, and all my friends thought I was absolutely crazy. They're like, why, why would you go to a newspaper to make video? Um, that's weird. Um, you get millions of people watching the programs you make now. Mm. Um, you're going to trade that for like 10. This is like about 2000, 2008, something like that. Whenever the week before the financial crash was, uh, was when I moved. Um, and yeah, it, was, it sort of seemed like a crazy move to most people I knew in television. They were just like, you're bonkers. Like, you're, you're giving up your audience here. Loads of people watch TV. The technology is rubbish. And when I got to The Guardian, I sort of thought that for a bit. It was kind of crazy, right? You got there. Um, it had had one business plan for 190 years. And I got there and it was, when I got there, it was a team of four people that had been there like four months or five months. And what was the state of the video strategy at that time? There wasn't really one um, at all. Um, they knew it was a new thing, and they knew they probably should be doing it. So um, they just like employed a load of people from really different areas and just kind of said, go and film some stuff, put it up on the website. It was like a really, really good day if you got 10,000 views in a day. Like, you were just like, yes, this is the best day ever. We've absolutely nailed this. And it was really strange when you started as well. The other bit that, that made me laugh was that all the journalists there um, thought it, it was an addition to their job. It wasn't part of their day job. Mm. And why should they really be doing this? Because no one's really going to watch it. And actually, TV's where it's happening. So with all that, though, came just this insane amount of freedom, like the best bit about working in any organization is when you're doing a bit that's quite interesting but nobody really understands it <laughs> like try and find jobs there if ever you can it's it's the most amazing thing and so with that you know we didn't really know what we were doing I don't think any anyone did at the time we were sort of 
trying to a little bit copy broadcast news, mm. which absolutely made no sense whatsoever. And, you know, of course, if you try and do that, you're going to get absolutely hammered by broadcast news because they're really, really, really good at what they're doing and have a structure that isn't for people at the time to do it. So we kind of, yeah, just sort of kept going for a while. Um, do you remember any of those early day experiments that you might have tried? <laughs> yeah, um, some that were more successful, some that weren't, I think. Uh, sort of one of the first real big uh, successful things we did at the time was um, we went uh, and did a film in Tibet um, and it was about the, no sorry Nepal, it was about the Gurkhas who um, wouldn't get any medical help even though they'd fought in wars and stuff like that and it was the first time I realised actually you could do something different to broadcast news you you didn't you weren't a man in a suit that um had this really weird formal way of trying to explain something that's actually based on technology that's like 60 you know mm -hmm. broadcast news is 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 set up based on like 60 year old technology um and it is weird because the world's news doesn't last half an hour every day right or it doesn't last 24 hours a day if you're on a news channel either so you, you start to be you you began to realize that there was a, f a freedom to doing this that wasn't tied into broadcast codes and conventions. And also you began to realize that you could add value to journalism. Like mm. the process of, you can't fake video, right? Now I'm not saying print journalists fake anything, but it's a different process. If you're a print journalist, you want to quote, you can phone someone up. If you're like a video journalist, like you have to go there, you have to talk to the person. It, takes a bit of time to set up the lights or get the setup, at which point you're talking to them, right? It's just, it's a lot more immersive. So like you can't really do sort of fly in, fly out journalism in the same way. And I think that's really changed in a lot of ways how we do journalism at The Guardian. Mm. How so? I mean, certainly it seems like, you know, you need to balance the sense of urgency in which you need to publish a story, right, to, to stay relevant. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yet at the same time, you want to have a high quality product. So how do you balance those trade-offs? Well, that's one of the beauties of working in a multimedia organization, right? Um, everything doesn't have to be video, right? If, if you're doing broadcast news, everything has to be video. Even if it's like a weird statistic that isn't actually that visual, like it's text on the screen because that's the way it has to be. Um, so again, that gives you a freedom, right? Um, if it's not a good video, you just don't have to do it. It's as simple as that. Um, if, if it works as a two minute format, great. If it works half an hour, brilliant too. So um, I, I'd say there are a few things at the start that people didn't really understand. And uh, one of the things that, you know, one of my jobs there is, is dealing with a hundred and almost 200 year old organization, but about 180, 190 years, they had the same business model, right? They, um, something happened somewhere in the world. They sent someone to that place in the world. They talked to people for a bit, wrote it down on a piece of paper, came back to the office. We printed it on some paper and we sold it to people, right? That was the business model. Technology changed and made it more efficient in different ways, but that was basically it till the internet came. So when you're working in something like video that never traditionally had a place in, in print, because it doesn't, right? You can't play a video in a newspaper. It would be impossible. Um, you have to like constantly make the case for that. 
So the first thing I always say to people is, why do you really want to do this in video? It's expensive and it's a pain in the ass, which it is, you know, it's, it's a lot harder than writing a few paragraphs. So after a while, they start to understand, actually, you're probably not going to turn this around in an hour. Like, actually, you, you, you need to give us, our department, the right amount of heads up to do a good job with this. And it's interesting because, you know, we make videos right from breaking news through to documentaries that, you know, you measure the lead-in time in months. So it took a while to get everyone's head around that, but I think we have a really good editor-in-chief there at the moment, Kath Viner, who... Um, I, I, she set up Guardian Australia and I helped her with that and that was a purely digital organisation. I think that really helped the organ. you know, when someone at the top is saying this is the way we're doing it, mm -hmm. it makes it a lot easier, right? So let's talk about that. How has the strategy, particularly around digital and, and video, changed over the 12 years that you've been there? I, you know, I'm guessing it started as, well, we kind of have this feeling that video is something we should learn more about, test, experiment with, to, okay, this has now become an imperative of our business going forward. How has that strategy shifted? So I think it even shifted to a certain extent before I got there. Like we were, you know, I'm going to totally mangle this quote, so I apologize, don't fact check me. We were like about the eighth biggest newspaper in the country, right? Um, we went, when we moved over to the internet, we ended up as like second quality English language news website, right? That's, that is a big gap from not even being that influential in this country to being globally influential. And that sort of doesn't happen by accident, you know. Um, there's a few things about the way The Guardian's set up that helps that one. Um, we're run by a trust, so we don't have a billionaire owner. We have um, a trust, a, a, a trust fund, so we can make decisions in the medium and long term, right? If um, we want to break even, and it's a responsible thing to do, but if we don't do for one year, it's not the end of the world and we're going bust, right? So we can structure the organization to look forward to those things in the medium term. So I think there was a moment just before I arrived where they decided the internet was a brilliant thing, which was a very clever thing to do, and, and hats off to the team that did that. And they just employed a load of young people and said, just, just figure this out, guys. Um, at the same time, they really got into podcasting. Um, the word podcasting actually was first used in The Guardian by a Guardian journalist who, mm. who since said he used it to pad out his article, which I think is quite hilarious. But yeah, he <laughs> coined the phrase. The other, the other, it was a few suggestions for what it should be called, and the other one was called Guerrilla Media. I'm always slightly sad that it didn't end up as Guerrilla Media because it would have been cool if we were doing Guerrilla Media live now, right? Um, and then at the same time, yeah, the, the, they made a video department. And when they were making all these things, there was no financial route to making these pay for themselves. They purely thought along the lines of, yeah, this is probably important for journalism. Yeah. So let's get some people in and try and figure this out. And then maybe at some point in the future, we'll figure it out financially, right? Um, so they, they, they did that. So they, they did that for a bit. And... Then I think we sort of dodged the pivot to video when everyone else was sort of going like insane on what if everything was video, which we all now know is probably a bad idea looking back at it. We never really did that. Video is always seen as this is part of what we do, but it is part of what we do, right? Um, I'd say where I think it's changed, so I ended up being head of video 
globally about six years ago. I think we've really focused what we do now. I think we've really um, accepted that there's some areas that we're strong in um, and there's some areas that you're just not going to be able to compete in, so you shouldn't. Um, and I can probably break down like the types of video we make. Maybe that's an yeah, that'd be helpful. easy way of explaining it, right? That um, this, is, this is how I figure it out in my head, so apologies for this rambling chat. We have live and breaking. Uh, this is mainly like a, a service to the website. It's wires, it's UGC, it's quick profiles. It's not really original journalism as such, but like it's, it's evidential and, and that's not going away now. Like if you're an organization like us and a breaking news situation happens, uh, like unfortunately it did in Germany yesterday, for example, almost the first evidential stuff you're gonna get there is video, right? 30, 40 years ago, um, it would have been eyewitnesses and you would have sent a reporter. After that, there was, there was a little period um, where it would have just been um, camera phones mm. and just pictures. Now, the first thing anyone does in that situation is pull out your phone, which is a video camera, start, starts taking footage, right? So, and are you licensing that from like Associated Press, Newswire? Are you using yeah, services like Newsflare or Stringer? Um, we... Um, yeah, we license it. We talk to people directly with UGC as well. You know, we, we tend to not rip and, and ask for forgiveness afterwards because we're in the business of trust. Um, so we try and, you know, it's really important in that moment, especially because we have live blog formats that are really good to, to be responsible. I'd mm -hmm. rather my team be five minutes late and get it right than be the first one putting it up and get it completely wrong because mm -hmm. so much stuff swirls around in those situations. So like it's about verifying it, it's about editing it efficiently, and it's about putting it up in a responsible manner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of those decisions are, are, are super quick decisions that have to be made. So, you know, they're generally quite young producers that do that, and there's a lot of pressure on them, but we have a really supportive team around them. So I'd say that's, that's breaking news. That mm -hmm. does about 80% of our views. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then moving on for that, um, you know, we do explainers. Um, you know, Vox are amazing at explainers. I can try and explain to you what explainers are, but just, you know, think about a Guardian version of Vox is probably the best way to do it. Um, we do that a little bit, but really what we're best known for um, is on-the-ground reporting. And I think this is sort of where we really come into our own about sort of... Seven or eight years ago, even before I was running the department, we kind of figured out that it is really exciting to get on the ground in a way that doesn't feel like broadcast journalism, that gives, that reflects your audience, that you're going out and talking to them and going and spending longers in areas that most people don't, that you're having longer conversations that don't feel weird, like broadcast news usually does, that people aren't just a case study that one sentence to be slotted into a journalist theory on something that's already been written before they get there. So probably the best thing, there's two examples of this that I can talk about a little bit. Um, one is Anywhere But Westminster, which is a series that we've been running for a decade now. Um, and it is, as it sounds, it's uh, uh, John Harris. The, uh, he used to be a music journalist and now he's a political journalist and he's really brilliant and amazing and outspoken, and John Domacos, who's the producer that works with him, and they um, go anywhere but Westminster, and they, um, they just get on the ground to sort of talk to people about what's going off. Um, 
generally their films are like sort of 15 minutes long. They'll do about six in the run-up to an election. They were, they were kind of the first people at The Guardian to really start to uh, get a handle on what was going off around Brexit and what was going off with the Scottish referendum and stuff like this. And it was this sort of super, super fascinating thing because they weren't in London anymore. Um, John Harris is based in Bristol anyway, but they'd be on the road for like three months in the run-up to an election and they'd come back to the office and they'd be like, guys, you don't know what you're talking about. Have you actually gone and talked to some people? Mm. Um, and it, it, it changed the whole way we do political reporting at The Guardian. We, we, we kind of have a rule now where people, you should at least spend a night somewhere. And you spend a night somewhere, you go to the local cafe, you go to the local pub, you have casual conversations with people around your report, and you get a real feel for the place, right? Um, with the idea being that London is probably a bit of a specific microcosm that's not necessarily representative of how the entire yeah. UK feels on a specific issue. Yeah, I mean, like, especially Brexit, for example, the area I live in London was 70% remain. Mm. If you just hung around that area, you thought it was going to be an absolute slam dunk that we were going to remain, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you get out of a 20-mile radius of London that isn't in other big urban areas, like it changes, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same with the elections as well. It is really easy, to, uh, if you're a journalist, to stay on Twitter, um, read all your friends' opinion pieces, not actually do any reporting and feel like you know what's going off in the country, and in actual fact, you don't know what's going off in the country. So, as I say, I really love and respect our on-the-ground reporting in video because... Um, it change, it's changed the way we've done journalism in the whole organisation. And I think um, it's part of the process that allows you to do that. The, the other side point I'd, I'd say about that when you're talking about on-the-ground reporting that, you know, trust is a big deal in journalism at the moment. And, like, I think the audience trusts you more when they see you're actually there. Mm. And they see that, yeah, you've gone and talked to this person, you've spent time with them, you're actually listening to them, you're not going with a preconceived idea. And maybe, like, the video might not feel like a traditional news video. It might take a turn. You don't... Like, my favourite one in, in, in the run-up to the last election, um, they were down on the south coast, and um, they just got really pissed off with being on the election trail. And they met a homeless person, and they said, screw it, we're just going to do... Sorry, I'm swearing in this, by the way. Am no. I allowed to swear? I'm going to swear a little Go bit. Go for it. Um, they, uh, yeah, they just said, no, we're just going to do an episode on homelessness. And they, they spent a week just with this community being like, I'm not going to do anything on the election. I'm not interested. Why are they talking about this when they're not talking about this? Yeah. So, um, and there's been uh, real um, lovely consequences of this as well. Um, they went and revisited a guy who'd had his benefits cut, basically, yeah. through no fault of his own. And they'd met him in a food bank. And... Um, he ended up getting, I think, like 20 grand in crowdfunding from people that it was nothing to do with us. It was like the community found who he was, picked up, was like, I just want to give this guy a tenner because I can see he's a good guy. Mm. So there's sort of real consequences of that that happen. Um, an another bit of that that I'd say, sorry, I'm slightly rambling here, is, is a spin-off of Anywhere But Westminster was we got absolutely hammered by the people of Stoke because we went around Brexit, went and did something on Stoke, and they're like, what are you doing? People only... So Stoke... Sorry, I'll explain this slightly for the global audience. Um, it was always seen as like a bellwether area for Brexit, mm. that um, it was like this... It was kind of on the edge of which way it was going to go, and if it went one way, then, you know, that was basically... 
what the whole country was going to do. Yeah. But, you know, news crews would, like, rock up there, find the boarded-up high street, find, like, the worst-looking estate they could, find people that fit what their image of um, Stoke was, mm-hmm. spent three hours filming there and went back to London to edit it, right? Um, we got a bit of hammer for doing that, even though we didn't do that, and... There was one lad who was in um, like a block of flats and he just started shouting like, how come you never talk to me? Why don't you talk to me? So the, the two Johns that made it said, come down and we'll talk to you. And this guy had this like just incredible story mm. about um, he just got out of prison. He was trying to find work. It wasn't working. No one really gave him a chance. And so John, the producer that did it, said, well, it was kind of good to talk to him in this one, but. I just want to go back to Stoke. Like, they're right. No one spends any time there unless it's a backdrop for an election. So we let him spend six months there on and off. And we made a series of seven films called Made in Stoke, which was, like, hyper-local. Sort of fascinating set of films. One of them was about an initiative to try and gentrify an area. They sold off homes for one pound to get, like, creatives in, um, which gives a great headline but like we actually followed it through to see what it was like for the people moving in there and and what was the community response to creating these seven films um stoke loves john now (laughs) um (laughs) they 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 really do it he made sure it was uh super collaborative and that it wasn't all just bad news either that a lot of the stories were about young independent business owners trying to do stuff i think one of the sort of big messages that that They've, they've got from their sort of um, how dispirited they are, how, of how politics has gone, is that like a lot of localism out there is working, but it's not a particularly sexy thing to make journalism about, right? Mm. But it's working. People are saying, well, then no one's ever really going to do this for us, so we're going to do it ourselves. So all around the country, there are these fascinating people that are just doing brilliant things on a shoestring. So they're sort of finding ways to report that. But um, yeah, Stoke sort of really loved it and it, it didn't pull its punches either yeah. um, there's a lot of issues with stuff that had gone wrong there as well but off the back of that now um, he's working with the Roundtree Foundation on um, that was called Made in Stoke I think the next one the working title is Made in England where we're going to three or four towns and it's going to be even more collaborative where we're um, one of the things John really wants to do is uh, put cameras in the hands of local kids that wouldn't mm. normally get access to the media mm-hmm. and actually leave something behind. So leave people with a set of skills and, and an ability to be able to um, tell their own story. Because I think that, that's sort of a big issue that a lot of people can't tell their own story. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things I've been meaning to ask you about is how has social media changed journalism, right? Changed how The Guardian thinks about reporting. Um, I mean, how, yeah, in every way you could imagine, right? Um, you think about the life of a... This is before my time, right? But think about the life of a journalist when there wasn't even mobile phones. Right. It's, it's insane when you think about it. Um, basically, your editor would say, go there and write about this. You'd, you'd go there. You'd probably figure out where the nearest pub was with a payphone. And you'd probably have to file text by about three in the afternoon, which um, you'd do that by phoning up someone and like 
you know, dictating it down a phone to them, basically, right? You didn't have a mobile phone. Once you'd done that, they couldn't query it with you. You're done for the day. I mean, it was probably a really sweet time to be a journalist, right? <laughs> you finish at three o'clock, no one really knows where you are, and, and expenses are brilliant. You know, it is a total different ball game now, right? Um, all journalists are available 24-7 if they want to be. There's no deadline. There's no, you know, you can't, I'll wait another day to update your story. If something happens, you have to do it. I think with social media, there's like a new level of scrutiny as well, which I don't necessarily think is particularly helpful, especially for young members of my team. Like we've done, um, we ran a massive uh, data set on all the comments on our website. Uh, we've since done a lot of work on it. But really depressingly, if, if you're a person of colour or if you're female, you're going to get a disproportionate amount of people being negative towards you. Mm. And, you know, that is completely and utterly unacceptable. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a huge problem. Um, I don't think any of the major tech companies, if I'm brutally honest, have, have found a way to deal with that properly. Mm -hmm. You know, having said that, the bad side of it, I think social media um, and just digital media in general, you just now have a new audience, right? Um, for us, the way I always describe it with The Guardian, when I was a kid, the way I, I learned about The Guardian was my parents bought the newspaper. I'd probably get the magazine on a weekend or the bit with the music in, and that was like the cool bit that kids read, right? And the Guardian now probably... Um, the first time someone who's under 30 is going to read about The Guardian isn't by picking up a newspaper, right? It's, it's on Facebook or Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. It might be text, but it's probably going to be audio or video. So there's like a, a responsibility there that if, if your brand's been this thing in the past, what is it now and how do you talk to them? So I'm, I very strongly feel about what we do. You know, our, obviously our YouTube audience is very different to our print audience. But I don't think we should be in the business of like, you know, translating millennials and Gen Z to um, to boomers. That would be mm. a ridiculous thing to do and completely shooting yourself in the foot. Like, you know, you, also on the flip side of that, and I've seen this with a lot of brands, if you get it wrong, you look like your dad dancing at a disco, right? <laughs> no one wants to look like your dad dancing at a disco. So you sort of have to find find that balance, basically. Yeah. There are two other kind of big structural challenges that jump out at me from you know standpoint of, of uh, journalism on social media. The first is that most social platforms from a community standpoint are engineered to kind of create uh, these echo chambers, right? So, you know, if I'm liberal, I surround myself with liberal friends. If I'm conservative, most other people I interact with have conservative viewpoints. And so, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily get the other side of the story, right? You don't necessarily stay open and receptive to other perspectives. I wonder how you challenge that or try to encourage objectivity if that is a goal in, in journalism. Um, so there's, um, there's a few things that I personally try and do. One, um, I'm a middle-aged white man, even though I'm from Sheffield, so I'm not actually the proper profile, you know. My parents were sort of pretty normal. There should be less of me when I leave the industry. That is like one of the main things I'm trying to do with all my teams. I need more diverse teams, because, you know, it shouldn't be like an Oxbridge loving. It shouldn't be people that are just fortunate enough to have parents that happen to live in London, so they can work for free to, for you know, six months or whatever to go through that bit. 
and it sh and I shouldn't employ people that that look and feel like me because I'm comfortable around them, right? I want to employ a set of people that uh, make me feel a bit uncomfortable at times, that challenge me at times, and that have access to communities that I couldn't go anywhere near. So that's sort of one side of it. I think that you know, to get out of a filter, a filter bubble is made by people that are, that all think the same. So you need to get out of that by changing who you employ in the industry, right? And it's difficult at a legacy organization, mm. um, but you know we try and do that as much as we can. It's easier in my departments because like everyone comes from non-traditional backgrounds mm. because no one really knew they wanted to make online video 15 years ago, whereas like you know the newspaper's 200 years old. There's that. I, I think, as I said before, the process of making video and getting out and talking to people, that um, I think that really helps build trust and we're in the business of trust. And I, you know, nobody really listens to me on this one. I really try to encourage my teams not to be on social media very much. Yeah. Like, use it professionally. I, you know, that argument with someone you've never met before will wait 24 hours. It'll still be there the next day if you really care about it. And quite often you see people, you know, it's like a war reenactment or something. Yeah, Having the same, same arguments every day, but mm -hmm. it doesn't actually achieve anything. So, I so think that actually brings me to the second challenge I was yeah. going to raise with social media, which is that the platforms are geared towards creating controversy, right? The way the algorithms promote content is based on what gets the most impressions, views, likes, right? Other types of engagement. And that's how they make money, right? If something is getting more activity, it's going to mean more ad opportunities for the platform. And that kind of runs counter sometimes to uh, the goal of a news organization is it kind of creates a space in which people want to spark controversy. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's tough in a way, right? Because um, you want to be thinking in the medium to long term, right? And I the way I feel about video and audio, actually, that if it is a good deal for the audience, they'll come back to you. So if, like, if... I always had a problem with, like, the scrolling, you know, um, on Facebook where it was, like, pivot to video. Oh, 20 million people have watched three seconds of this, maybe, or they just scroll past it, right? It was a lovely metric to shout out in offices to be like, yeah, 20, 20 million people watch this. Did they actually watch it? Like, did they actually take value from that? And I think that's what you have to think about. No matter what micro fashion's happening within that particular platform, is this right for us as an organization? And are you, are, what are you doing for your audience, right? And if you're not actually doing anything for them, if, if you're tricking them into watching it, or actually you're just taking value from something someone else has done and you're just piggybacking off the back of it, you're not creating the value yourself. So I think sometimes that's hard because it is rewarded so starkly <laughs> um, on platforms. But you know, sometimes it's worth just being like, okay, is this right for us and what are our first principles? sort of where we are, we have quite a clear journalistic purpose. And so it's really handy. Um, the boss wrote it in an essay, which is also an audio long read, if you want to listen to that anywhere. It's good. I also run the audio department. Um, the, you know, you can always refer back to that and say, you know, why are we making this? Is this I'm in an organization that isn't for, just for profit, right? So... Um, First and foremost, it has to be journalism. Mm. So that sort of gets around a bit. It's frustrating when you're not rewarded for that. But I think as a lot of platforms mature, they're coming around to that. Um, I think um, I'm part of the news working group with, with YouTube, and I think they are 
coming around that and, and that they're doing a lot of work on sort of authoritative sources and trying to figure that out. I think it's going to take them a while to get there because it is really, really hard and, and, and the scale of what they need to turn around is going to take a long time. And tech organisations don't always understand media organisations, yeah. right? They, they, they think in different ways, they're structured in different ways, they have different ways of sort of solving problems. But uh, yeah, I guess my hope is you, you just do stuff that you know is responsible and you hope that the platforms will, will mature yeah. and, and reward that eventually. What is your take on this new breed of uh, journalistic publishers that have grown up in an area, era of digital media? So I think of companies like Vice and the Young Turks and Cheddar or Attention, which are all probably very iconic American examples. Yeah. So forgive me if there are better British examples. No, no, we know them all over yeah. here. Um, they're pretty global. Um, I mean, like, you know, they're all very different, right? It's, it's, but it's really impressive to see what people do. You know, I'm fascinated by Vox. I really love what Fox do. Like they're really clever. They've picked out a corner and they've gone for it. Um, I love the, you know, I think Vice do it slightly less now, but I really love the on the ground reporting that mm -hmm. Vice did. You know, it, it's, it's a real smart way of doing it, and they're sort of the first people to not feel like broadcasters doing that. I think it's it's tough. That's one of the things, and I think it's it's been tough for a lot of startups doing that. But yeah, I I really love them, and I think that it shouldn't be a closed shop just just for sort of legacy or you know because we were good at doing this thing 200 years ago why should we be good at that right it, it, it shouldn't be a, a gimme for anyone and i think you know it is it's really the more people that are out there doing this the healthier it is you know i'm not happy when any of the new startups close down right i i, I want more journalists out there because we live in a world now where politicians want to talk directly to the audience tech tech owners do as well, right? They like the idea of journalism, but when they start being scrutinized, they don't really <laughs> like it, right? And it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I remember, you know, um, when Obama started doing it, everyone was like, yeah, isn't this brilliant? And then Trump did it, and everyone was like, oh. <laughs> um, so it's, we have to constantly make the case for journalism, why actually it is really important, not for someone in power, just to have a direct route to the audience with no one asking them the difficult questions that the audience really don't have time or expertise to ask. So, like, you know, I, I think it's it's a problem now, the way that um, in England Boris Johnson's doing, like, the people's PMQs where they're vetted questions and he does it in his own... Like, he literally does it at number 10, completely vetted PR questions with pre-recorded answers and kind of make, makes out like it's this democratic thing that mm. he's talking to the people and it's not. It's just a huge PR opportunity. So yeah, like I worry about that and I think the more journalism organizations out there, the better to be honest. And I think the new startups, like I'm fascinated by them. We can all learn stuff from them. Amazing. So we've uh, hinted at, you know, changes in how the audience uh, approaches journalism, particularly from a trust and authenticity standpoint, right? And, and we are experiencing this in a dramatic way in America, and you know, I, th I think you're experiencing it significantly here in the UK, is there's a much higher level of scrutiny. There's oftentimes distrust or cries of fake news among traditional respected legacy publications as much as you know, crazy blogs that people start on the internet. So as a journalist, how do you react to that? How do you continue to ensure a level of trust and authenticity for your audience? Well, first and foremost, like um, it's a safety issue for my journalists a lot. 
like um, the Johns I was talking about before, they did like, there was like a, um, I can't remember how long ago it is, but there was a lot of student protests. It was around the time the Occupy movement was happening. And like you'd say, these are probably the most sympathetic men to these courses that anyone's ever going to have. But, you know, they'd arrive, and as soon as you get the camera out, you know, fuck you, mainstream media, fuck you, you just lie about me. And, you know, generally they'd say, well, let's have a conversation about this. Or, you know, the sort of trope of the mainstream media would never report this. Mm. And, like, you know, as I say, civil wars on Twitter, you can get bored posting the 25 links of the articles we've done in the last three days on the thing. But, yeah, it's so basically from a safety point of view, it's, it's difficult for my journalists that um, it's really easy for people to, to smear them. It's really easy for people to be violent towards them. And I think politicians in, in, in general that, um, you know, with the rise of populism, you know, they're not actively necessarily stoking it, but they're remaining silent when they probably shouldn't because, because it suits their purposes. You know, it's, if, if you go down to that level and have that fight, you get covered in mud, right? That I think you can try and bat down every argument about, fake news um, and then you just get stuck in these endless fights with people that have got nothing better to do but I guess the way we are trying to do it is just let's be responsible make make good journalism um, let let your actions um, be judged afterwards right report things properly uh, make sure you get stuff right and if you keep doing that you know trust isn't something that you can get overnight like journalism's taken a kicking and probably rightfully so um, but you know as I say our organization's been doing this for 200 years you know historically we've been on the right side of most things you just have to keep going at that um, and and sort of trying to find ways to continually prove yourself to the audience. So I have a million questions, and I could keep asking you them all day, but I want to kind of turn it over to our audience here live. Uh, any questions that you're dying to ask Christian here in the front? So the question is, how do you adapt the content uh, and the format when you think about making the switch from traditional print publication to, to video and audio? What, what changes? The bar's a lot higher for video because it's expensive and it's a pain in the ass, as I said before, and really sort of, you know, it can take days or weeks to do, right? So, um, I have, like, have a mental checklist. It, it depends on the format, but I have a mental checklist. One, it's got to be visual in some way. If it's not, like, don't bother, do a podcast, do something else, right? Is it interesting? That's a really obvious thing to say, but sometimes something's visual but not interesting. Can you explain it in a sentence? Right? What, how would you sell this afterwards? If, if you can't, there's so many times, like, you know a video is going to be bad because you've got halfway through an edit and someone's trying to explain it to you and they just can't and you're just like, ah, oh, there's no clarity there. So can you explain it in a sentence? Does it fulfill our, our journalistic purpose? So, you know, is it helping people understand the world? Do we have some sort of access that no one else has got? Why, why is it us doing it and no one else, right? I'd say that kind of works for all our formats, but, you know, it's, it's very different for um, what's a breaking news video to um, what would be one of our long-form documentaries that we do because, you know, it's a time commitment, right? So it has to be a really high bar for a documentary. And I think one of the things that, that, that we try and do is we don't shy away from using the fashion and editing techniques of those platforms, but we try and do it to bring a big audience to key guardian stories that wouldn't necessarily be there. 
so one of my favorite examples of this was uh, we did an article on, and it's going a few years back now, on um, it was a, a feminist march in Bolivia after there was like a load of terrible forced sterilization there. It was like a, a Guardian story, right? It was an important thing to talk about. But, you know, they, they put up the article about 10,000 people read it. We got some footage of, of, of the protest and put it out on our social media, and I think we got, like, 20, 30 million people looking at it. For me, that was an absolute win, like, looking at something and going, yeah, this is us, but we think this community over here would love it too. So we're going to go to them on their terms and take our story there yeah. and do it in a way that makes sense for them. So that sort of doesn't give you specifics, but it sort of explains the philosophy a bit, if that makes sense. I think, as well, we, we've just finished doing a YouTube project and what I like to do especially when we're experimenting is just give my teams a bit of space to fail you can often the first two or three things they do aren't very good because they've never done it before and at that point you can lose your nerve and be like ah oh, this is a big brand with there it's just like no have a couple of months figure it out and and they almost if if you trust them they almost always come good right so I think there's a bit about Luckily, in a print organization, most people don't know what we're doing half the time anyway, right? So we have a space to figure that out. So I'd say, you know, you get people that are native to that platform, get them to understand the philosophy of your organization, then just give them a bit of space. So we are just about out of time, but we'll do one quick question. So in 30 seconds or less, the uh, question is, <laughs> 30 seconds uh, or less. how do you interact with the other departments um, within The Guardian? It's changed a lot over the last 10 years. They love working with us now. We have our own commissioning budget, but generally it's uh, um, either side gets right to veto. So if I've got an idea I'm going to spend two weeks on, and it might be with a journalist from another department, I think their editor can say no to it too. Or if they come something with me and it's just not right, I can say no. So generally the bigger projects, we only get them off the ground if everyone's behind them from the start, right? And then once they've bought in, it's a lot easier conversation. What I would say about that, and I'll be really fast because it's 30 seconds or less, is... It's constant education. You, you, you don't just teach the organization once. Like, it is every day. It's being there, being an advocate, and not being too loud before you've got some results. But when you've got some results, go and talk to them. Make them feel good about it. Make them realize that it was them that help, helped you do that. So it's, I try and... Um, also, as well, like just, just on the ground level, all my producers have personal relationships with journalists. So they'll meet for a coffee, they'll have chats, and they'll go back and like continue to do different projects together once they get once they get a sort of working relationship. So I think that you know you can do all you want with a set of slides, but if people aren't talking to each other, it doesn't work right. So I try and encourage everyone to do that. Amazing. Well, Christian, thank you again. This has been a phenomenal opportunity to sit down and hear a little bit more about how the Guardian has embraced video, how journalism has changed in the last you know decade or two. Where can people find out more about you and more about the incredible video and audio work that The Guardian puts out? Um, hopefully you won't be able to find much about me online because I try and stay behind the scenes and let my producers and journalists do the work. But, um, you know, look at our YouTube channel for video or your podcatchers for any of our podcasts or go to our wonderful website where there's lots of stuff happening there. Thanks, guys. Amazing. Thanks again.